Uh, the verses for message four are Psalm 2, verses 10, 11, and 12. And this really is the preaching of the gospel, the announcing of the gospel. Now, therefore, O kings, be prudent. Take the admonition, O judges of the earth. Serve Jehovah with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish from the way, for his anger may suddenly be kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. In the first message, we pointed out that in Psalm 2, we can see the two systems of God in the universe. We can see his government, which is God's operation according to his will to fulfill his purpose, and the system of grace which is the triune God in Christ as grace for our salvation to restore us to himself, to become our enjoyment, our delight, our supply, so that we are able, even willing, to subject ourselves to his government. And in these verses, you have the governmental side Because the day is coming, the day of the Lord, when God, through the man whom he raised from the dead, Christ Jesus, will judge the world in righteousness. Uh, The ungodly mock this. They believe there is no ultimate accountability. They mock the thought that our Lord will come again. They think we are fools for believing such a thing. But we regard them as imprudent for not realizing there is a government in this universe. There is a righteous God managing everything and that his righteousness requires the exercise of his judgment. This is the side of government. But the gospel is the gospel of the grace of God. And we'll devote much time a little later to verse 12. Kiss the Son. What a delightful expression. Kiss the Son. And take refuge in Him. Uh, At the beginning, I would like to emphasize the same matter we've been trying to emphasize in the first three messages. That in God's economy, everything is personal. Because the center of God's economy is the most wonderful person. God does not give us things. God does not give us matters. God gives us Christ as everything. 
And we are somewhat fallen if we slide into formality or routine or dead habit in spiritual things. We rely on methods, on techniques, and lose the contact with the person. I appreciated uh, a number of the testimonies yesterday in particular regarding morning revival. We are thankful, sincerely thankful, for the practical provision of the Holy Word for morning revival. What a wonderful supply. And Brother Lee himself initiated this and he enjoyed this. We would never suggest uh, that we would depart from this. But it's easy for us to make things a routine. To have as a goal getting through something. That I find this in reading the Bible. If my goal is to read the New Testament in a month then it's easy to just, my goal is to get through so many pages to read the New Testament in a month. But what is the benefit of reading the Word of God without contacting God, whose Word it is? So in our time with the Lord in the morning, the main thing is to contact Him. Perhaps a partial testimony might be helpful to you. Uh, this goes back a good number of years, and I was uh, procking in the morning, that is, pray walking. Uh, there's no such word in American. Um, and I had this little conversation with the Lord saying, How do I be with you? For instance, I can't see you. Yeah, you can see me. And so, what do I do? How should I be when I'm alone with you, one-on-one? -on -one? And then I said to him, Sincerely and with respect, I need you to teach me how to be with you. And uh, I won't say that I've learned, but I'm learning. The Lord really wants direct personal contact with us and with him. We do well to be reminded that according to the emphasis in the Bible as a whole, God's eternal purpose carried out through his economy with arrangement and dispensing is a romance. It is a love story. The first life study training that Brotherly had, 30 messages in 10 days, was in the winter, December 
1974. And that was on the book of Romans. And the opening of that life study is, I believe, an eternal remembrance. He begins by saying, in a most holy sense, the Bible is a romance. This is the way Brother Lee opened this 20-some year period of ministry and the life study of the word and opened the book of Romans with such a word. The Bible is a romance of a universal couple. And for sure, the church must be built up as the body and as the new man and the kingdom and the church must function as the warrior. But how does the Bible end? It ends with a wedding and with a marriage. And the new Jerusalem is unveiled as the wife. This is the consummation. And Paul was brought into this and he viewed his ministry as a betrothing ministry. So he told the Corinthians in his second epistle that he betrothed them to Christ. Well, I don't intend to depart from our particular emphasis on Psalm 2 to give a message on romance. The point is, nothing is more personal than this. I know love is sweeter than this. The love of a parent for sons and daughters is most precious. The love of sons and daughters for their parents is most honorable. But the highest, purest, most intimate, deepest love is in married life. And ultimately, it is the marriage relationship that is the symbol of the great mystery, Christ and the church. The redeeming God is the husband. The redeemed, transformed, glorified, tripartite elect becomes the wife. And we will live as the fairy tale formula ends happily ever after. With that reminder freshly in front of us, let me say again, and I'm thankful for the expressions that came out in prayers. Everything should be personal. Religion makes things impersonal, severe, formal, legal, dead, 
But when God comes to the point in Psalm 2 to announce the gospel, although he says some serious things, we have this expression, kiss the son. Surely our kissing the son is a response to something, to God's wooing, to God's courting, to our being moved by the Lord's deep love for us. And so we like to express a sincere affection for him, thankfulness. And there are some verses in the New Testament, and we won't try to read very many of them, that indicate that the center of the gospel is also a person. That to preach the gospel is not primarily to preach a body of doctrines to people. Uh, I'm thankful that the Lord's recovery is spreading in Scotland. To Presbyterian land, where Calvinism has taken a stronghold, at least historically. But the dear Calvinists, they preach the doctrines of grace. This is their gospel, the doctrines of grace. And I'm not disputing the points, but it's impersonal. Did you get saved by a system of doctrines? And you found those doctrines just so pleasant and, and, and so delightful, you wanted to embrace them and become one known for believing in the doctrines of grace? Uh, this was not Paul's view. He said in Galatians 1.15 and then 16. But when it pleased God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might announce him as the gospel. This is Paul. Surely he understood grace. He understood God's predestination, God's sovereignty, man's fallen condition. He understood all of this. But what he announced was the son who had been revealed in him. He proclaimed a person. When he wrote Romans, the subject of which is the gospel of God, he made it emphatically clear in the beginning that Paul, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God concerning his son. 
The gospel concerns his son. Then in Acts, the Lord told them, you will be my witnesses. You will witness of me. Peter said, we are those who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. What we've seen and heard, we declare to you. Philip went to Samaria and announced Jesus as the gospel to them. The announcing of the gospel concerning which we should be increasingly burdened should be the most personal of activities. That we in ourselves are enthralled by a person. He's been revealed in us. We are one with him. We shamelessly love him. We would exalt him. We would proclaim him. We would magnify him. We would speak him. We would witness of him. So what we are presenting is a person to fellow human beings whose lives are utterly vain and meaningless. This is one and the most important aspect. But there's another side Or if not another side, there's another factor. And that is the gospel is to be obeyed. And the real issue in our announcing of the gospel is whether people will obey by believing. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, Be content that I remember the book and the chapter. Verse I can't give you. Paul speaks of God judging those who do not obey the gospel of God. And in Romans, both in chapter 1 around verse 5, and in chapter 16, maybe... Verse 26, Paul speaks of the obedience of faith. And we know from Revelation 20, when there's the judgment at the great white throne of all the unbelievers, they will be judged mainly for their refusal to believe in the Lord. That is an ultimate act of of disobedience, not to believe. Uh, The reason for this, and probably we'll come back to this when we reach the point on kissing and taking refuge, where we want to spend much time, 
Faith is related to the will. Not to the power of the will, the human will, but to the function of the will. I'm thinking of Thomas, the way he expressed himself. You know, he missed the meeting. You know how it is when there's a wonderful meeting and you, you missed it and the brothers are coming to you with overflowing testimony and it's just galling. They said, we have seen the Lord. And he said, unless I see the marks of the nails can thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. He didn't say, I can't believe. He said, I will not believe. The ultimate issue is rebellion against God. We saw this in the beginning of Psalm 2. The whole earth is in an uproar. The leaders of the nations refusing to be subject to God and his anointed. And the gospel concerning the Son is now announced so that the people would obey by believing. And we should be enlightened regarding this when we are preparing for a gospel activity, when we are participating in a gospel activity. Some need to be praying to bind the disobedience, to bind the element of rebellion. Lord, have mercy on this person and enable that one to believe. So let's look at the outline here. And I really want to dwell on the last section for at least half an hour. Because we are all here by the Lord's mercy, loving him and seeking him. So we don't need to hear too much about coming wrath. Or about the vanity of our life. I just don't feel that for our ministry this morning that we need to dwell on this, but we do need to have the realization as we are looking at, at Europe, what a hapless continent, the ungodliness. Is there a darker country on the earth? And let me, let me say it now with the right accent, than France. See, didn't say France. Than France. The darkness, the indifference. And so we need to be enlightened from Psalm 2 and other scriptures so that we have a clear view of the plight of our fellow humans. So the first section says, as the preaching of the gospel Psalm 2, 10 through 12 is a warning concerning the coming wrath of God 
and Christ upon the world. Now I'm looking for Acts 17. There's a verse here where Paul says that God has appointed a day when he will judge the world. Uh, anyway, I don't want to be distracted uh, looking for the exact utterance. Paul is preaching the gospel there. And he says, God commands all men everywhere to repent for there's a day set when the world will be judged. We are living in a sector of the earth which has total disregard for this. Do you think Richard Dawkins has any thought that there's ultimate accountability? Even many of us and many other believers are praying for Christopher Hitchens to be saved. As far as I know now, he still hasn't given in. And he says, if you hear a report that I believed on the end, don't believe it, consider that I was demented. Well, we shouldn't overemphasize this and we shouldn't crudely present this. But we need to let people know that wrath is coming. If we don't warn you, we're not talking about hell in a religious sense. If we don't warn you, we're not faithful. You don't believe there'll be a righteous judgment, but there will be. One day Christ will come to execute his judgment in his wrath. Now, it doesn't say anger. Wrath I would say, is intensified anger. Okay, this is coming. I don't want to yell at Richard Dawkins. That, that would not be a proper testimony, but to say, Professor Dawkins, consider me a fool if you wish, but the day is coming when everything you have written and everything you have spoken concerning God will be judged. And there's no point in arguing about it. Let's just wait until then. And you're a human like I am. And I don't want to see that happen to you. I don't want you to... I don't want to see you face the wrath of the Son. But you will. And whole nations will. In the New Testament, the period in which Christ will come to execute his judgment in his wrath upon the world is called the day of the Lord, which is also the day of God. And so, so many scriptures speak of this. Psalm 2 testifies of this. 
And this should be an element in us, motivating us to faithfully let people know in a suitable way that there is God, He is righteous and holy, and every human being will be accountable to Him in an ultimate way. And my responsibility is to inform you of this in love and in concern for you. I'm not treating you as an object. I'm not a hellfire preacher. But how can I be faithful to the one whom I love and serve if I don't advise you to be prudent in considering the outcome of your life? Because everything is known and everything is recorded. And if you persist in your disobedience and in your unbelief, you will face wrath. I think that's enough on the wrath part. But it's there in the sum. We shouldn't pick and choose. Just select what we like from the word of God. We have to present the whole counsel of God. We all need to realize that we are nothing and vanity. In uh, this psalm, that is Psalm 39, 4 and 5, David was brought by the Lord to realize that he was nothing and vanity. O Jehovah, cause me to know my end and the measure of my days, what it is. May I know how transient I am. Uh, there aren't too many of us in the room over 60. But can't we say human life is just nothing? Where did it go? How transient. And David prayed that God would cause him to know this. This is a very healthy thing to realize that the measure of our days is just transient. That shortly before I left uh, to come to Ireland, there was a news report about four football players from a high school team in New Jersey along with some others were driving in the SUV. The driver lost control, and four of these football players were killed, 17 years old. And that's a particular shock to teenagers who just shouldn't go around saying how transient I am, how vain is my life. But... They shouldn't live as if they are innately immortal. It is a mercy from the Lord that causes us to know how transient human life is. I'm not cynical at all. 
But I've learned this. Nothing lasts. Don't expect anything to last. Nothing lasts. Nothing. Everything is transient. And especially the best, the sweetest, the highest times. Nothing lasts. Behold, you have made my days as mere hand breaths. And my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely every man at his best is altogether vanity. So when would you say a human being is at his best? When someone wins an Oscar? Maybe a voice should, someone should be there with a megaphone saying, now you have the Oscar in your hand. At your best, you are vanity. Now you're getting a Nobel Prize. Oh, you're graduating from medical school. You're graduating from Oxbridge with your PhD. They're putting the hood on you. This is your best. How you labored to write that dissertation, to defend it before the faculty. Then here comes... The spoiler. Here comes Ron Kangas to spoil your moment to say it's altogether vanity. It's not that I say this to you. You need to realize this. You know, um, in the U.S., I suppose God must need a lot of lawyers We have so many of our young people going to law school and I can't, I'm illustrating here, I can't, I don't question whether they're led of the Lord or not. That's between them and the Lord. But do our own young people realize it's all vanity? We need to have, we need to be trained to earn a living. We need to have our education. We need to have a line of work. It's honorable to excel in our work, to advance as Daniel did. But do you remember what the Persian king said of Daniel? He said, Daniel, servant of the living God. Daniel, the God whom you serve day and night. But Daniel was very high up in civil service. He did his job, but his testimony was he was the servant of God. So it's altogether fitting you follow the Lord's leading as a young person to get the education you need to develop your God-given ability to get into a line of work or a profession and to excel there. But if it's a career, it's vain. If your heart is divided, and what part of the heart is for 
the Lord's interests. And part of it is for a career for glory in the world. You're pursuing vanity. It's all vanity. Surely every man at his best is altogether vanity. Surely every man is vanity, then we quote someone who really knew, right? If you get someone in dire poverty saying vanity of vanities, all is vanity, hard to believe him. But if you have this king who has a thousand wives and concubines together, all kinds of wealth, so that silver is just nothing in his days. And he has all this wisdom and has written these proverbs for him to say, vanity of vanities. Um, it's worthy of paying attention. I don't know any longer what the mindset is in Europe. Uh, just in my own line of education, I was very interested in how European writers, artists, philosophers coped with World War I, how it just shattered the worldview. And I appreciated the attempts of many to face the absurdity, the meaninglessness of existence. But now I wondered whether American materialism has conquered everything so that not even what I thought were the deep Europeans are really pondering the vanity of it all. Instead, everyone wants to have fun and to have money. And that's about all. Then point B says, the way to escape this vanity is to come back to God and take God as everything. Redemption, life, wealth, enjoyment, pleasure, and satisfaction so that we may be used by God to fulfill his original purpose in creating us for the accomplishing of God's eternal economy. If human beings don't sense the vanity of their life, it's hard for them to be open to receive the gospel. I don't know what it will take for residents of Southern California to be able to say vanity of vanities. It's all meaningless. Better to live in North Dakota. Well, I believe this is one aspect of the convicting work of the Holy Spirit to cause people to sense the futility of it all. The emptiness, the vanity, and at the same time to sense in them 
a longing for God. And then to turn back to God and take God as everything. Now, if we are to announce this kind of gospel, then God has to be everything to us. God in Christ, our redemption, our life, our wealth. I think you won't misunderstand me when I tell you, in all sincerity, I am much richer than Bill Gates. Much richer than the Sultan of Brunei. And whoever it is who owns Virgin this and that, you know, quite a dashing fellow. I'm, I'm much wealthier than you. My wealth, my riches, is God Himself. Amen. The unsearchable riches of Christ. Amen. So I don't envy you. I am content to live modestly. If I have what I need for my living and have something to give to the Lord, I'm content. I don't want to be rich. God is my wealth. Enjoyment. Human beings need enjoyment and pleasure and satisfaction. I mean, who's going to be inclined to believe in the Lord by a bunch of religious sourpusses coming on the scene? Here are all these miserable blokes, right? Is that a word, bloke? Okay. I hope, hope it's not an offensive one. Um, it doesn't mean we, we come on with a silly grin, tell everybody, have a nice day. But... We need to be this. This is what we are. That we have come back to God and he's everything. And now we're one with him to fulfill his purpose. C says our realizing that we are nothing, that our condition is sinful, and that our situation is one of vanity, opens the way for Christ to crucify us and enter into us to replace us by living himself through us and causing us to live together with him in an organic union. This is the divine concept of God according to the divine revelation of the New Testament. So this realization opens the way. If I see that human life under the sun is vanity, including our life in the old creation, it's transient, it's vanity, then our being should open up to want to be one with the eternal. I would like my life on earth to contribute to God's original purpose. I would like to be one with the Lord, to live together with him in a sweet organic union and do my part in God's economy. And I'd like to reach the end of my course 
with the assurance, I did what the Lord wanted me to do. I'm only one member of the body. I can't be the whole body. But instead of having a sense of vanity, I had the sense of fulfillment. Now, Lord, and Paul was like this. I finished the course. I kept the faith. I fought the good fight. And he could go to the Lord with the assurance, I did what you wanted me to do. And now I'm happy to be with you and you go on to others and they will continue. One person whom I appreciate in the New Testament is Luke. I have an idea about Luke and uh, I have to check with him. When I see him. (laughs) See, in his gospel, he has a lot to say about wealth and about riches. And my thought is this. This is not some kind of profound insight. It's just a brother's thought. He was a physician. And I believe he was reasonably well off. And I believe he left everything to travel with Paul and to be his attendant. That he left everything. So according to the principle of incarnation, God could then use him to write the gospel of the man-savior and to include aspects of the Lord's teaching concerning Riches and money and about leaving everything. We'll we'll just have to see. Maybe we'll hear his testimony. I hope we're all together at the wedding feast. We have a thousand years. I'd like to hear his testimony to say I was there in my practice and I was living a good life and excelling in my profession Then the gospel came to me and I connected with Paul and I realized the Lord's move was with him and I left everything to travel with him. He was on the boat during the storm of two weeks. Quite a precious testimony. I'm not saying that every doctor has to give up their profession and wander the earth with the co-workers to keep us alive. But I'm glad that Rick Scatterday is doing this. Okay, now we come to where we want to tarry for half an hour or so. To take refuge in the sun is to believe into the Son, Christ, taking him as our refuge, protection, and hiding place. And to kiss the Son is to love the Son and thereby to enjoy him. To believe in the Lord is to receive him 
And to love the Lord is to enjoy Him. Okay, believe and love. How can a disobedient, rebellious human being come to believe in the Lord? The way is for the Lord of glory to appear to us first in the preaching of the gospel of the glory of Christ and to infuse us with his element. And that infusion brings into us the ability to believe in him. We should not trust the natural human capacity to believe. Either people believe nothing or they believe really weird things. How many young men were sacrificed by the Ayatollah Khomeini in the war between Iraq and Iran, when he told them, if you would run into these minefields and clear the way by being blown up, you will be instant martyrs. Instant martyrs. And they believed this. And they did this. Now they're all in torment even as we're meeting. So we don't expect people to believe on their own. The real believing is a response to the Lord's shining. It's a reaction to a developing appreciation of him. When Christ is presented to us, ministered to us, when he's exhibited before us, when he is magnified, in our spirit we, we have some sense of appreciation and we open more. And as we're opening, there's a transmission from him into us which the Bible calls the faith of Jesus Christ, his own ability to believe. And as a result, we eventually believe in him. In 1974, Brother Lee suffered acutely because of certain things. And the training on Romans was scheduled for the summer. But days before the training was to begin, uh, Brother Lee had suffered a detached retina following cataract surgery. He had this detached retina. He needed emergency surgery, then a period to recover. Then while that was going on, uh, 
there was just a pressing suffering related to something else. Then, when he was able to minister in the winter training, he came to the experience of Abraham as an example of faith. And the Lord broke in to that training. This is in the life study of Romans now. And released something unprecedented about how faith is produced in a person. That the God of glory appeared to Abraham. Then he appeared again. Then eventually Abraham believed. His believing was a response to God's appearing, to his shining. And although I was still quite young in the divine life, I had the sense this is the issue of Brother Lee's recent sufferings. Now we have we have the life study. Abraham is the pattern of a believer. He was in Ur of the Chaldees. He was not a believer in God. He was an idolater. The God of glory appeared to him again and again. Then Abraham believed. And he believed in the God who calls things not being as being. And that led to the birth of Isaac. Then as we all know, God appeared to him and required the offering of Isaac. And Abraham obeyed in faith. And he came to believe in God as the one who raises the dead. I don't know whether you realize it or not. But part of the operation of the Christ in you is to develop your faith. We see this in Hebrews 12, where the writer says, looking away unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. God's entire economy is in faith. That's so clear from 1 Timothy 1.4, right? And faith is versus our natural ability to do anything. We know from Hebrews 11.6, to believe is to say, he is, God is, and I am not. The bride will have certain outstanding characteristics when she's ready to be presented to the Lord. One, of course, is the wedding garment, her righteousnesses, her God-man living. Another is her being built up. But an outstanding characteristic is her maturity. And Song of Songs, chapter 8 speaks of a believer, a young believer, uh, and her faith and love 
symbolized by the breasts are not developed. That faith and love need to be developed in us in a beautiful proportion. So we begin with a basic deposit of faith by which we believe in the Lord for our justification and we receive him. What I recall of Brother Watchmanee's testimony, he was in very seriously ill. Three words came as living words to him. One is, live by faith. And he realized he would live. He would not die of this disease. The next word was stand by faith. So he literally got up from his bed and stood up. Then the word came, walk by faith. And he walked down from where he was and presented himself. This is in his testimony. Eventually, everything in our living and in our service will involve faith. We will all be brought to the point where we live by faith. Uh, Not by our natural strength, not by our intelligence. We just live by faith. We pray in faith. We speak in faith. Everything is by faith. And we know from the parable in Luke 18 of the widow being persecuted by an unrighteous judge, crying out for vindication. That when the Son of Man comes, he will be looking for faith on the earth. You look at Luke 18 sometime. And the Lord will develop this kind of faith like this. Just like the widow, we're put into a very difficult situation. And the enemy is harassing us and we're vexed by the environment and we cry out to God and he is silent. And we cry out to God and he is hidden. We cry out to God. He seems indifferent. He seems to be doing nothing. Yet, in the midst of his silence, hiddenness, and apparent inactivity, something is rising up in us to believe. Even if my God is silent, even if he is quiet, even if he is hidden, I believe in him. Amen. And many of us will be led through periods of time, you will pray Hundreds, hundreds, thousands of times over years and years over something. 
And you wonder, why, why is this? Even I told the Lord, I said, I don't understand this. I would never make my son ask me 10,000 times for something. But then I'm reminded, he's the real father. Then, then you look at Luke 18, then it ends, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? The overcomers will need this kind of faith. And this needs to be developed. It needs to be perfected. So the, Paul, in writing Hebrews, is telling us, look away. Learn to look away unto Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of faith. When we look away and turn our heart to him, the infusion comes and our faith is developed. Eventually, the Lord needs to train us to pray with the faith of God, to pray the prayers that will carry out God's government. Everything is in faith. So I appreciate there's a rich vein of ministry on faith. You look at the crystallization study of Romans. There's a series of messages on this. And Brother Lee dwells on, Rome, uh, on Hebrews 11.6. He who comes forward to God must believe that he is. So only God is. He is I am. And I am not. And when we exercise this faith, we are one with the Lord in an organic union. And in the words of the psalm, we take refuge in him. Do you sense the need for protection? Don't you sense the need for a hiding place, for a refuge, for a tower? Do we have any idea, do our young people have any idea what the world is? That we need a refuge. And what does the verse say? Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Then I'll read the outline toward the end of the message. Then on love. Love needs to be developed in proportion to our faith. And the love needs to be matured until we reach Matthew 5.48 Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And you look at the note and the context that is to be perfected in his love. Faith is a matter of receiving the Lord. Love is a matter of enjoying the Lord whom we have received. 
And this love, if you look at Song of Songs, it needs to go through stages in order to mature. And eventually, she becomes, the seeker becomes, the Shulamite, the reproduction of Solomon, absolutely one with him. So the Lord working in us is particularly interested in developing this attribute of love. Dispensing the triune God of love into us. Saturating and permeating us with the loving essence of God until we become the same as he is in love. This is to kiss the sun. Uh, maybe sometime, I, I have the thought, maybe I'll have the leading sometime to give a message simply entitled, Kisses. Like, Judas kissed? What a, what a statement. Will you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And Song of Songs chapter 1. I don't know how all the men brothers are going to learn to do this, but we're going to have to learn because we're part of the bride. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. The definitions that I'm aware of in the ministry of love include the following two. One is love is the nature of God's essence. Another is love is the inner substance of God. And the body builds itself up in love. So this is what I'm suggesting about your present and your future with the Lord under his shepherding. He will do much to develop your faith and your love. And what kind of experiences you will have, only he knows. But referring back to Luke 18, and I don't want to disclose too much, but enough to give you an indicator that this is real. My heart still aches due to unanswered prayers for years and years. Still aches. And so, on the one hand, I would say, forget about it. I'm not praying about this anymore. I inform my wife this is over. Then 20 minutes later... <coughs> the prayer comes up again. What, what's a man to do? Our faith needs to be developed. Not to make us heroes. The age of the faith heroes is over. We're the common members of the body, uh, living a life of faith and love. So eventually everything if you are a confident person, 
can speak well, the Lord will bring you to the point where you can't utter a word without relying on him. We really live by faith, we stand by faith, we walk by faith, we speak by faith, we pray in faith. And while this is going on, the Lord will bring us through cycle after cycle, through song of songs, so that our love is matured. And eventually... We will be in chapter 6. We will be as lovely as Jerusalem, beautiful as Tirzah, or the other way around, terrifying to the enemy. We will be the Shulamite. We will become his co-worker. Then we'll be in chapter 8. And the only thing we want is the Lord to come. We just want to be transfigured. We don't want to go to heaven. We want to be released from the old creation to love the Lord to the uttermost. And the gospel, once received, puts people on this faith and love development journey. Okay, I repeat A again. To believe in the Lord is to receive him. And to love the Lord is to enjoy him. The Gospel of John presents faith and love as the two requirements for us to participate in the Lord. Through faith we receive the Lord. And through love we enjoy the Lord whom we have received. So let's say tomorrow morning you have 20 minutes to be alone with the Lord. What will you do? What will you exercise? I have learned the first exercise is to turn my heart to the Lord. Because the heart is the believing and the loving organ. Lord, I turn my heart to you. I open my heart to you. I draw near to you with my turned and opened heart. Lord Jesus, I love you. I still don't see you, but I believe in you. I need to say this. We live a corporate church life. We live a meeting life, a life of fellowship, a life of serving together. The more the better. But if we do not have a private, personal, hidden life with the Lord will not mature in our lifetime. We cannot live 
without one another. I cannot live without the prayers of the body, without the life of the body. I need to have fellowship. I need to serve in coordination. But the deepest experiences are always private. And just consider, even this year up to this point, don't divulge it, just consider it. Have you been developing your personal hidden life with the Lord? Do you have some time every day recognizing there are extraordinary situations in which it's you and the Lord one-on-one? It's here where faith grows. It's here where love develops. It's here where the roots go down. Probably next weekend in Jacksonville, when I'm speaking about the church as the city, as the kingdom, I'll point out from the gospel of the city, that's Matthew. You have many aspects of living the kingdom life. But the Lord emphasizes the secret. Praying to your Father in secret. Fasting in secret. Giving in secret. And I understand the snares, the temptations, the preoccupations, the distractions that cause the first thing to go day by day is this. A time alone with the Lord. My dear wife once wrote a little poem. I don't think it exists anywhere. And the subject of the poem was a cup of cold tea. Only a mother can write a poem like this. And this cup of cold tea and the poem devoted to it was a symbol And how did it come about? Well, at last, all three of the little ones are quiet. Everything is quiet. And mom has some time for herself. So she heats up the water, pours the water into a cup, inserts the tea bag, waits for the tea to steep, And then things start to happen with these three little people plus other things. And several hours later, she comes across the cup and the tea and the tea bag and the cold water. It became for her a kind of a pleasant symbol of of motherhood. I know it's not easy. But the Christ who lives in you is the Christ who knows when to withdraw 
from everything outward and to be alone with the Father. Isn't that in Matthew 14? He would not be driven by the work. He sent the crowds away. He sent the disciples away. And he went up to the mountain privately to pray with the Father. Now, I would like to encourage you without placing a heavy burden on you. If you are not consistently having any time like this, then I suggest you talk to the Lord and you ask him for five minutes. Okay? Let's, don't be a dreamer here. Say, I'll do 90 minutes. Come on. Five minutes. Lord, please arrange my situation where I have five minutes with you. And once that's established, then you may say, okay, I'm going for seven now. Then you will realize that your inner being will long for more time. Then you will discover that in this private life with the Lord, something is happening in your inner being, especially with your faith and with your love developing. So maybe I'm not the only one who needs to take a little walk and say, Lord, I need to learn how to be with you. How to talk to you. How to fellowship with you. I, I don't want to be religious. I need you. I want to contact you. Okay, let's finish up. I think that's what we're doing. I think we're finishing up now. Through faith we receive the Lord, and through love we enjoy the Lord whom we have received. Faith is for appreciating. Oh, you're with the Lord. You appreciate him so much. I told a few saints toward the end of yesterday, I appreciate Christ more than ever in my whole life. I don't know if anybody got any help. I think you might have gotten a little help. But I got some help from the Lord to appreciate the Christ more than ever before. And faith is for substantiating. That is, it makes the unseen things real. And receiving the unlimited riches of the triune God. Wow. Now we're just a bunch of Isaacs receiving the unlimited riches of the triune God. Love is for experiencing, enjoying, and living out the immeasurably rich triune God. If to you the God-man life is an obligation, it's a demand, you won't succeed for long. This point says, living out is a matter of love. Because you love the Lord, you want to express him, 
you want to live him. It's not a practice that you do as a formula because this is what God men are supposed to do. So I should try to do it. This wasn't Paul's situation. He was enthralled by the Lord. He appreciated the Lord. He said, Christ will be magnified in my body, whether life or death. He wasn't thinking, you know, I'm an apostle, and apostles are supposed to live this way, and there's just this obligation on me to me to live as Christ. So we need our love to develop. The more our love is developed, the more we'll experience him, enjoy him, and live him out. Faith is given to us by God that we may receive Christ, the embodiment of the triune God, and thereby enter into the triune God and be joined to him as one, having him as our life, life supply, and everything. This is quite a statement. It's given to us by God. Not by the faith given to us by God, we receive Christ, who is the embodiment of the triune God. And we enter into the triune God, and we're joined to him as one, having him as our life, life supply, and everything. We believe into And in the morning especially, I don't wake up like a hind let loose, just vital to the uttermost in resurrection life. (laughs) I somehow grope to consciousness. I realize what time it is and where I am. And I don't have that much uh, feeling going for me. But when I exercise faith, I believe into him which implies getting out of something. Lord, I exercise my spirit of faith to believe into you, to be one with him, that now he's our life, our life supply, and our everything. Love issues out of such a wonderful faith and enables us to live out all the riches of the triune God in Christ, with those who have believed into Christ with us, that the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit may have a glorious corporate expression. This is a lovely point. Love enables us to live out all the riches of the triune God in Christ. And I love this next point. With those who have believed into Christ with us. What is sweeter than this? Than believing into the Lord and loving the Lord and living out the Lord with his riches. With those who also love him, have received him and enjoy him. This, this is the church. This is the church in its essence. So that the triune God may have a glorious corporate expression. Okay, um, I'll stop here. I have a kind of mysterious 
feeling after this message. Did I give a message? Or what is going on here? <laughs> the only thing I know at the end is I love the Lord Jesus. Amen. And I believe into him with God-given faith. Amen. And I'd like to pursue him Amen. with you all. Amen. So could we have some fellowship now? I don't know if the trainees will join us or whatever, but we have some time for some fellowship.